You know it's Christmas when your pastor actually asks to go to a ballet. That's what happened this past weekend. My wife was just, she kept wondering, are you really wanting? You know, for me, I don't go to ballets unless either my children or my wife are in them. But this was the nutcracker, so I was, I was willing to go. I was actually somewhat surprised that I went. And in all honesty, I thought the cutest of them were the little mice that came in. Uh, they were probably four and five years old, and they looked absolutely adorable. And as soon as the little, those little mice came in, and there's you know, probably eight to ten of them, everyone was clapping and cheering and, and saying, oh, and it was, it was adorable. We loved it. We had a great time. And... Um, <clears throat> I was actually impressed by the fact that I, I watched it, I enjoyed it, and I used absolutely no sarcasm. Um, for this reason, my wife generally does not invite me to any ballets that she goes to. Uh, I'll, I'll say silly things like, uh, I, I don't understand, is the sound system broken? I don't hear anybody. And, and so, but I didn't do that. I actually enjoyed it and had a great time. Um, but... I know it's Christmas, and, and that was the reason why I went. I, en I enjoyed it. You also know it's Christmas when you start getting Christmas cards in the mail. We sent out our Christmas card. I think it had about 35 pictures on it. Uh, realistically, I think there were 12, but a lot of pictures. Uh, we got one in the mail from a particular family. We have been exchanging Christmas cards for, no lie, about 30 years. And it's a picture of their family, and you know they're, they're, they have three children, married kids, and, and all of this. Merry Christmas, and it says who they're from. And then you'll always notice on Christmas cards, at least the really good Christmas cards, there is a quote from Scripture, right? You know, and it's generally found in one of the Gospels. And so here's my test question to you. Where is this quote from in the Gospels? Are you ready? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Don't talk right now amongst yourself. I want you to think for a second. Where in the Gospels is that found? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Think really hard. Think really, really hard. Because actually you will find that that's not found anywhere in the Gospels. It sounds like it is, doesn't it? It's actually a quote from a scripture passage that I want you to turn to right now in Isaiah 9 that is written, was written 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years. What a profoundly prophetic scripture passage this is. And actually, I would love for us to dig into the first five verses. Those are, one of the two of those are quoted in the Gospels themselves about Jesus. But I want us to pick up here in chapter 9, verse 5, excuse me, verse 6, where it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, amazing the, the truths that are in this. I, I, I love Christmas cards. Some of them, you know, when they read this, you'll actually see the entire passage. I, I was just reading a Christmas card the other day, and this one, I, I don't know how it turned into a Christmas card. Maybe it's just a Christmas joke, but at the very top, it says, uh, Christmas group therapy. 
and there are four clients in this group therapy and the therapist himself. And the first one is Santa Claus. And you see above their heads a little blurb that they're thinking or, or that they're saying out loud as far as why they're in this therapy group. And poor Santa Claus, he says, I don't think I believe in myself anymore. There's an elf next to him, and he says, I'm stuck in a dead-end job. And then there's Rudolph next to him, and he says, everyone laughs and calls me names and don't let me join in any reindeer games. And then there's Frosty, and he says, I think I'm bipolar. But I love Christmas cards, and honestly, I, I love the ones that are based on this passage of Isaiah because this is such a rich passage, and it teaches, just as we were singing, the first song and the last song that we did, I don't know if you noticed this, uh, but they spoke about Jesus being king. And he is going to come, and he is going to be born king, and as the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I want you to know that in the end of this age, the devil doesn't win. In many understandings of end times, the the church comes across as defeated and downtrodden, and Jesus has to come to their rescue, and barely, you know, there's there's hardly anybody, any Christians left, and, and you're wondering, where is the triumph in this? And scripture is absolutely clear of the increase of his government, of his rule, and of his peace, there will be no end. That means there is a steady increase of Jesus' rule as king sitting on David's throne. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to be king over the Jews, though that is how he presented himself in his day. He is king over his church. He is head over everything for the church. This is the king that we serve. And it says, the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I want to tell you what, in in this Christmas season right now, there are so many people who celebrate Christmas and peace is the last thing that they get to experience. For them, many of them, there is no peace. Absolutely no peace. As a matter of fact, there is no joy. Joy to the world. No no joy whatsoever. They have been robbed of that. Santa Claus has taken his place in in Christmas, in Jesus' place in Christmas. And Christmas has been uh, on steady decline. He is no longer its focus. There is no peace. Maybe for some of us here this morning, I mean, if we were to be really honest and we were to put together a Christmas list, and some of us have our own Christmas lists on Amazon.com, is that right? And, um, and, and such. And, and maybe at the top of their list, if they could do this and actually purchase it, would be peace, would be joy. I want us to look over the next couple of weeks, as far as what it means, truly means for Jesus to be king. Because that has everything to do with what I'm talking about right now and his peace in our lives. He comes as a conquering king. We're going to need to ask the question then, who are our enemies? But I truly believe that Jesus right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, rules on David's throne. We actually read about this, so turn with me, but to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, he is telling, the the angel Gabriel is speaking to Mary, and he is telling her of this son that is actually going to be born to her, and here is the prophecy. 
He says in verse 30, Luke chapter 1, verse 30, do not be afraid, which honestly is what most angels say. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've never seen an angel. But most people, when they encounter angels, they're terrified. The shepherds, when they saw the angel, they were terrified. When Mary sees the angel, there's probably this fear, and he says, don't be afraid, Mary. If you were to actually look at angelic visitations, they almost always have to introduce themselves with, don't be afraid. Don't be, I've come in the name of the Lord. And he says to Mary, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will, listen to this. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus came as a king. Now, this is not new. Luke isn't introducing some new concept. We actually see this very same theme, <clears throat> very same theme in Matthew. If you were to turn to Matthew, you don't have to do that. But in the first three chapters, observe something here. You might remember if, if you've recently read those. I know my wife, she loves to read the uh, anything and everything around uh, that speaks of the God, in the Gospels about the birth of Jesus. And I mean, some, some of you do that too. When we have Christ, we have Christmas devotions, which I do that several times leading up to Christmas, and we go through the Christmas story in Matthew and Luke and such. And you'll find in Matthew, in the first several verses, the genealogy of Jesus, and or, or actually to Joseph, and he is in the line of King David. And this is the very reason why Matthew gives us this genealogy. Of course, Joseph finds his wife-to-be pregnant. So being a righteous man, he decides, you know what, I'm going to put her away. I'm going to divorce her quietly. I'm not going to put her to public shame. I don't understand what's going on here, but she certainly is not pregnant by me. And he has a, a dream in which an angel appears to him and calls him Joseph, son of David. Interesting. Matthew is wanting us to realize that he is of the line of David and is going to be producing a son, and that son, of course, will be in the line of David. Move on now to chapter 2, and we have the Magi coming on. So you remember the Magi, they're following the star, that, that they're in the east, and they see the star in the west, and they're following the star, and of course, they're going to go to Jerusalem. Why not? That's the capital of Israel, and so the star leads them there, and in Matthew chapter 2, it says, where is the, they, they're speaking to Herod, where is the one born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Herod, of course, becomes jealous. And now the focus switches to Herod because Herod wants Jesus killed. Now, God gives some uh, directives to Joseph as far as how to protect his son. But we see this theme of kingship, of a king being born. And of course, the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 3, we see John the Baptist, and the very first words out of his mouth are, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Everyone knows that when you're talking about a kingdom, you've got to be also talking about a king. And so Jesus appears on the scene as king. He's born as a king. Luke picks up on this. I want you to turn now to, back to Luke, and in Luke... We see this theme in, in the very same chapter, but a little bit later. Understand what, what we're talking about here. When we're talking about a king and the implications of a king, I don't want you to think in your mind of a president, like our president. 
Um, uh, of course, he's very like very different than President Trump, but he, a president has very limited, or at least he's supposed to have very limited powers. If you want to compare a king in government to something in America, you would have to look at all three branches of the government because a king, at least in the Bible and generally in in, in our day, but a king is both, he, he, he exercises, he, he, he has authority executively, he has, he has authority in the legislative, and he has authority in the judicial. Kings would render judicial decisions. King would pass laws. Kings would rule over the people and would conquer enemies. These are the branches of our, in, in our government, the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the, branch, and the judicial branch. So if you want to think about the, what a king does, you've got to think about all three of those branches. And we're going to need to do that a little bit as, as we explore this concept of a king. But here is what John's father, John the Baptist, when he was born, his dad gave this prophetic word. He said in verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, he's referring to Jesus. His prophecy about his son is coming a little bit later, verse 76. But he says here in 69, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies. And I want you to underline that little phrase, our enemies. Because we we're going to need to understand what enemies has Jesus come to set us free from and from the hand of all who hate. Who are those who hate us? To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the, or, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. What is the significance of Jesus as a king? Because it's going to be more than just he's the boss. It's going to include something about him conquering our enemies, but who are our enemies? So as we go through this, we look at this, and today we're going to focus on one aspect in particular, but what is the significance of Jesus being king, and who are these enemies that Jesus will conquer? Because Jesus came as a savior, yes, but the theme in Matthew, and we're going to see in Luke, is that he, he comes as a king, as this conquering king to defeat our enemies. And I'm going to tell you what, right now, in our day, in your life, right now, you are facing many enemies. Jesus came to conquer those enemies. So let's look into this a little bit more. Look at, look at Luke chapter 2. Now, I, I mentioned this. I'm not sure if it was last Christmas or the Christmas. I generally preach two or three Christmas sermons each year, this being one of them, of course. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly if it was last year or the year before. But as we look into Luke's account of Jesus' birth, and you might be able, you, you may have had this memorized because you've seen the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas like a hundred times. And at the very end, Linus, you know, Charlie Brown's been asking the question, what's, what's Christmas all about? And Linus says, you know, Charlie Brown, I think Christmas is all about, and he quotes from this passage in Luke. And I want us to skip down a little bit because the angel appears 
And of course, the angel says to the shepherds, do not be afraid. But skipping down, he says, suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And I understand that some of your versions have um, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's generally what the greeting cards say because it's from the King James. I'm just encourage you that the, the better translation is peace on earth to men on whom his favor rests. God's favor resting on men. But here's my question. Look at this. There's a particular word that's used in here that is translated in most Bibles as host. Now, I don't know if you're familiar what a host is, and I'm not talking about if you're having a party and you have a question about the party, you ask the host because they're the one putting on the party. That's not the type of host that we're talking about here. This Greek word is actually literally translated army. And what happens is we have a company of an angelic army. Now, it would be sufficient for Luke to simply say there was a great, there was a multitude of angels and they sang, but he includes this word army. And, and for years, that, that just intrigued me, and, and, and I really didn't understand, Luke, why are you introducing us with introducing this group of angels as an army? Because there is no battle here. I don't see any drawn swords, no flaming swords, nothing in the spiritual realm about swords here, it seems. So why, do you, why are you introducing, why are you wanting us to know that this is an army that is gathered together to be able to sing and to be able to announce the birth of the king. And then I remember some time ago, I was, I was reading through Revelation, and I came across this passage, and I want you to turn there, and it's in, it's in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation tw chapter 12, now I understand that when I mention the word Revelation, some of you are like, cool, he's going to preach on end times, right? No, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be preaching on end times this morning. I want us to look at Romans, excuse me, Revelation chapter 12, because not all of it's in Revelation is about the end times. It truly is not, regardless of what you've seen on Left Behind series, regardless of books that you have read, Revelation is a lot about stuff that happens throughout the church age, not just the end times. And so here, right, right here in chapter 12, we see a woman, now it's symbolic, okay, this woman represents the nation of Israel. And she, is, she has a crown of 12 stars. Guess what those 12 stars would represent? Yeah, the 12 tribes of Israel. And it says that she is pregnant and ready to give birth to a male child. Then, it's, then John says, and I saw another sign in heaven. The first, of course, being the woman. The other would be a red dragon. And this red dragon, with his tail, scooped out a third of the stars and flung them to the earth. That would represent Satan, the old serpent, the dragon, and his goal is to destroy the people of God. His goal has always been to destroy the people of God. With his tail, he sweeps out a third of the stars, and we learn in chapter 1 that stars are represented by angels or, or leaders. And so these, these angels then are flung to the earth. They're the fallen angels. And I'm not, I'm not going to read that right now, but in, in verse, what is it, verse uh, 7, there's a war with these angels. But I want us to look at right now in verse 4, where it says that with the dragon, do you see that in verse 4? The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about 
to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. That word moment means as soon as. It doesn't mean sometime afterwards. But Satan, we are told, is right there watching this woman give birth to this male child who is then snatched up to heaven and sits on the throne of God. And this male child is about to be born and the devil desires to devour him the very moment, not sometime later, but the very moment that he is born. So let me ask you this question again. Why is there an army of angels announcing the birth of Jesus? Now, this is not my point, but I want us to bring, I want to bring your attention. We see no battle here. We see no swords drawn. What do we see? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. The devil obviously does not devour Jesus when he is born. And this angelic army, by proclaiming the glory of God is literally encountering, doing spiritual warfare so that the enemy, Satan himself and all of his angels, cannot destroy this child Jesus. And can I say this? That from the moment Jesus is born, the devil pursued him, seeking to persecute him and kill him. And it was only at the cross that he finally, Satan truly believed he had succeeded by destroying baby Jesus. Well, he's not a baby anymore, of course. This king, the one born king of the Jews, king over all the nations. And that's what it says right here. Look there, verse 5. It says, he gave, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. Jesus came as a king to bring peace. His purpose of devouring our enemies is to bring peace into your life. Peace. Now, I realize that we can be busy, busy, busy during Christmas season, and that's not, that, that's not the type of peace that I'm talking about. I want us to look at a type of peace that we can embrace, that is ours, that Revelation 12 actually talks about, that this king of the Jews, one born king of the Jews, that's sitting on David's throne and is ruling, and the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I want to talk about the peace that this king came to give in conquering his enemies. And the very first enemy that I want us to look at this today is the enemy, the devil. And as we look right here, we see a battle that is taking place. This battle is described this way. Follow me, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Can I assure you that this battle, it's very possible that it has been waged throughout human history, 
But we are, we are told that there is a battle and that as they're fighting, but the focus is not when it begins, but when a change in the battle, well, excuse me, but when there is a change in the battle. And we, we read about that change because it says right here, it says, but he wasn't referring to the devil, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. There is a battle. It is the devil and his angels fighting against Michael the archangel and his angels. Here's something unique about the, the fraction 30, excuse me, one-third. One-third means that the remainder is twice as many. So think about that. When, and, and you see this fraction used throughout Revelation. You see it in Zechariah. You see it in prophetic literature everywhere, one-third. As soon as you think of one-third, one-third of these stars were swept out. That means that the remainder of the angels outnumbered them two to one. As soon as you, ref you think about a third, you think about if, if there's going to be a battle, it's going to be lost, and, no, and that's exactly what happens here. The devil, with only one-third of, one of the angels, he fights against Michael, and he loses his place in heaven. Now, it doesn't say that the battle is over. As a matter of fact, we find out in this chapter that Satan is thrown to the earth, and the battle simply changes. That's not what I'm going to talk about today. I want to look at something that happens and I think we can actually pinpoint when this change in this war, this battle, takes place. When Satan is actually loses his place, kicked out of heaven, and it says later on, follow me here, that he is actually thrown to the earth. Here's what it says. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now, now have come. Underline that word now. Now, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Understand that the word, the name Satan is a Hebrew name and it means accuser. It means accuser. So here is Satan. He's engaged in this war. We don't know how long it's been waged. It could be, as I say, waged throughout human history. But there is battle waged in heaven. And then at some point, Satan loses his footing. Maybe in this war he loses the battle. However you want to describe it. But the, 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 the essence of this war changes now. And he is no longer granted access into heaven. And we're going to need to look at that. And now he is cast down to the earth with his followers, with his demons, with his fallen angels, with his army. And this is what it says. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brother, Satan himself, the one who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They overcame them. Who is they? 
think about that for a moment. Who is they? Who overcame Satan? It would sound like maybe the angels, but in this context, they is you. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Here is King Jesus, and at some point, we'll get to that in a moment, at some point, the battle changes, and those who choose to follow Jesus have overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony is the blood of that lamb applied to their lives. So picture this with me, if you will. Job chapter 1, okay? Job chapter 1. Now, that is the story, you might remember, where Satan follows along, kind of in some processional of sorts. He's following along the angels of God as they're going past the throne of God, and we see Satan in the throne room of God. And he has an accusation that he wants to make against God's servant by the name of Job. And God says, you know what? He's a pretty good guy, isn't he? And, and Satan says, well, you know what? If you would just allow me to have Adam a little bit, I'll wreck him. He won't want to follow you. He won't be so blameless. Oh, the reason why he follows you, God, is because you've given him a cushy life. Yeah, take that all away and we'll see. And so God says to Satan, I will allow you to do this, but do not take his life. And God allowed Satan free access to Job's life, and he lost everything, everything but his wife. He lost everything. He lost his health. He, he, he comes to this point, and he, he's miserable now, but he never falsely accuses God. And throughout this time, we don't know how long it lasts, but throughout this time, he remains righteous in what he says and does. And we see, my point here is that we see Satan having access before God to do what? To accuse Job. And I'm going to tell you this, that for centuries, Satan, if, if we can put it in human time, in a human time frame, I'm not convinced that human time works that way in heaven, but in our human time frame, for centuries, Satan was allowed access before the throne of God to do what? To be Satan, to accuse everyone. And you know what? Every single time he was right. Since the fall of Adam, every single accusation carried weight. Every single time. So when did this change? When was Satan barred from the throne room of God and never allowed access again. Because there's significance of that, we'll see. Look at that verse. Remember that word I told you to underline? Now. Now, that's our, that's our clue. Now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Do you want to know when Satan was told, no longer will you be allowed access 
to accuse the brothers no longer. When? When Christ was crucified on the cross and was raised from the dead. That's when salvation was secured for us. That's when he purchased our salvation by his blood. That's when Satan was hurled down to the earth and his game plan changed. He was no longer allowed access before the throne to hurl accusations. Let me tell you the significance of this. When you as a lawyer do law, either as a prosecutor or a defender, in a courtroom, you have to go to your state and take the state bar exam. When you pass the state bar exam, that means you are allowed to cross what they call in the courtroom the bar. Behind the bar are people like you and me who are spectating and observing and watching. In order for you to cross that bar to now enter into the courtroom to sit at a, whichever table, the prosecutor's or defendant's table, to defend or prosecute, you must pass that bar exam in order to cross the bar. Let me tell you this. Satan was a prosecutor. Satan stood before God, and he justly, rightly pointed the finger saying they are sinners, they are not worthy, they should not be granted justice or, 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 or mercy, they should be granted justice and be punished for their sin. And constantly for centuries, he would be able to point to the people of God and he would, he would be so justified in saying they are guilty for their sin. But it was, church, listen, at the cross, at the cross, and I want to see it as at the resurrection as well, because the cross without the resurrection has no power, and the resurrection without the cross has no purpose. So it's the cross and the resurrection. When this happened, a, a, a turn in this battle took place, and let me word it this way. The accuser, the prosecutor of the brothers was disbarred. He was no longer allowed to come before the people of God and bring accusation. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ, when we trust in him, is applied to us. And we now have been washed free. We have been washed clean by the precious blood of the lamb. Jesus sacrificed for us. And so consequently, every accusation that the devil has against us falls on deaf ears. God has disbarred him never to be allowed entrance or access into his judicial courtroom to bring any accusations whatsoever. He has been hurled down to earth. He has lost his credentials. He cannot gain access and accuse the brothers. And so for this reason, he's been disbarred. He cannot bring any accusation. As a matter of fact, let's go back in time just a little bit. Oh, with me, if you would. Okay, Abraham. Let's take Abraham. It would be true that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But every time Satan accused him, God would be able to say to him, but I am crediting righteousness to him. 
I am in essence saying he is righteous. And the devil would be able to say, based on what? How can you simply make Abraham righteous? He's a sinner. That doesn't follow the rules of heaven. Do you, do you realize that there are spiritual rules that are put in place in this created universe? Because God, he doesn't just forgive just because he wants to. There must be a legal right for him to forgive. And the legal right is in place from all of creation because it is the very nature of God. That law that was put in place is life for life. That there is no forgiveness of sins apart from the sacrifice of blood. Life for life. So as Abraham, excuse me, as Satan is appealing to God and saying, wait a second, God, what do you mean you are justifying? What do you mean you're making him righteous? That is not fair. And the only response that God the Father would give is you wait and see. You wait and see. Because that sacrifice of Jesus remained in the future. And, and in, in Romans 3, it says that Jesus' sacrifice actually vindicated God for all of those years, from the time of Abraham, 2000 BC, all the way to Christ for 2000 years, and obviously even further back. But when those who believe in Jesus, excuse me, those who believed in God, they were, they, they were righteousness was accredited to them because it was looking ahead to the cross and to the resurrection. And God would appeal to that based on that rule, based on the authority that Jesus would die on the cross, life for life, that by his blood, Abraham's sins were forgiven. God would point to the future. So when that event happened, God no longer had to say to, the, to, to Satan, the accuser, you wait and see, you wait and see, just wait and see, just wait and see. Because when something happens, an eruption in the spirit realm, in, in all of history, will take place. And Satan's battle plan will completely change. Now, this is so significant, church, so that when Christ died, the enemy was disbarred. He was no longer allowed to come before the, the judge himself. And he was hurled down to the earth. Now, here's the significance of this. Many of us, as we go through life, we make mistakes, we fall, we sin. And some of this sin is so significant, so filthy, it brings upon us shame. Shame is when our sin is exposed. We can feel even before God that sense of shame because he knows our sin. Now, for some of you, little lies aren't real shameful. But there are sins that we have committed. I'm not saying that they're okay. But, little, but more significant sins expose us, and they're shameful. Many Christians in Jesus' church today walk around with this weight of shame on their shoulders. And they understand the truth that Jesus died for those sins, but this shame is so deep and it's so emotional that they can know the truth without really embracing all the implications of that truth. Because the full implication of that truth is Satan can no longer accuse you before God. 
God turns to Satan and says, you know what, I hear your wah, 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 wah. That's all I hear, all right? Mike Curtis, you know what, he has sin, but I don't see it on his record. You're no longer allowed, devil, to bring these accusations to me. You cannot cross the bar and enter into my courtroom. You have lost your credentials. You've been hurled out of my courtroom, no longer to be able to enter. So children of God, saints of God, listen to me. Why do we keep listening to the accusations of the accuser of the brothers? You have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. Now, some of you right now, you're thinking of some of those shameful things that have happened in your past. And, and, and I want to inc- say to you, there's, there's a balance here. We don't go through life and we sin and we just think, yeah, it's no big deal. No, sin really is a big deal. It really is. I was talking with someone not too long ago, and they, not a part of our church, and, and they have walked away from the Lord because shame just drove them away from God literally drove them away from God. And as they walked away, there was just guilt. You talk about peace in Christmas time, what peace? Joy? Don't understand that. They were consumed in shame. They did not want to follow God. They continually listened to the accusing voice of the accuser of the brothers. See, that's our problem. Though Satan's been disbarred from God and God, excuse me, God takes no account whatsoever to his accusations. He's been hurled to the earth. And guess who is there to listen to him? You and me. And we listen and listen and listen to these accusations without realizing the depth of Christ's love. That, he, that his blood truly washed away all of your sin. What is this shame? It was paid for on the cross. Let, let me look at it with you right now. Turn to Zechariah chapter 3. And in Zechariah chapter 3, we have an amazing picture, a prophetic picture that Zechariah sees, prophetically of course, and it is, it is a perfect picture of what we're talking about right now. Zechariah, chapter Zechariah, is towards the end of your Bible. Right after Haggai, Zechariah chapter 3, right before Malachi, the last book in the Bible. It says this, in verse 1, it says, then he showed me, referring to Zechariah, he showed me Joshua. Joshua, the high priest. He was the high priest at the time. Zerubbabel was the governor, you may remember. Joshua, excuse me, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, the accuser, standing at his right side. This is before the cross. Satan standing there at Joshua, the high priest's right side. You have that picture in your mind? To do what? What Satan does best, does best to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It is not, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire. He's been rescued like Abraham. 
believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, looking ahead to what would happen. But what would happen? You and I both know. Now we know anyway, the cross and the resurrection. So Satan is standing there at his right side, and he's accusing him. And God says to him, the Lord rebuke you. Now, the reason why he's saying the Lord is because that is his covenantal name. You may not see that here, Yahweh. And there is power in that name, Yahweh. And he speaks that name, Yahweh. You, remember, you may remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when they come to him. And they, he's asking, well, who are you looking for? He doesn't use the Hebrew term Yahweh. He uses what would be the best equivalent in Greek. He says, ego eimi. He says, I am. Now, we can understand that to mean Jesus is simply confessing, I am he. Who do you seek? We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Ego eimi. I am he. But what we do what we sometimes don't realize is Jesus was actually confessing, I am Yahweh. You know, remember what happens. It says that they stumbled backwards. They weren't just kind of surprised and the lead guy knocked the person behind him, who knocked the person down behind him, who knocked the person down behind him, like a domino's effect. No, the power of God in that name, Egoimi, or in Hebrew, Yahweh, that is, that is what they encountered that evening in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the enemies of God who wanted to arrest Jesus fell down. The power of that. So, so here Satan is standing before, standing beside Zechariah before Yahweh. And Yahweh himself says, Yahweh, rebuke you. Yahweh, the God of Israel, rebuke you. And it goes on and it says, now Joshua was dressed, how was he dressed? In filthy rags. As he stood before the angel, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off these filthy rags, these filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. And I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. This is Zechariah saying, I, I said, put a clean turban on him. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. We could continue on, but I think this is enough. I, we see this picture of, of Joshua clothed in filthy rags, just like you were. Just like you before, you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And we see a picture here of those filthy garments coming off, those sins of yours being washed away. For Zechariah, it was a looking ahead to what Christ would accomplish for him on the cross and on the resurrection, in the resurrection. And it would be a picture, therefore, of Satan then at that moment being disbarred from the heavenly courtroom, no longer allowed to come before God and be able to point the finger. And so my question to you this morning is, why do we continue then to listen to this accuser of the brothers who's been disbarred from God's courtroom? Why do we keep listening to his accusations? Yeah, that Mike Curtis. He's this, he's that. Remember these things that you did in your past? Have you ever had the enemy do that to you and the, the shame just starts coming back? It will rob you of your peace. It will rob you of your joy. So my question is, if God doesn't listen to him, 
Why are we? Why are we listening to him? The filthy garments, your filthy garments have been taken off and new clothes. You've been, as you look through Revelation, you always see the saints of God dressed in what? Fine, clean linen that represents the righteousness of Christ. You have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. There is no accusation that can stick in God's courtroom. You are freed. You are forgiven. Shame has been lifted. It's been broken from you. You've been set free from that. Then why do we keep going back? You know what it's like? It's like the dog returning to his vomit. Now, I realize that that is, has more to do with action than how it's quoted in Scripture. But as Christians, we do that. It's like this filthiness from our past. We go back and we revisit it and we mourn over it over and over. And God is saying, look, why are you doing this? This is why Jesus came. This is why he died and rose. This is, this is what he secured for us. This is your birthright. This is part of your inheritance. The shame has been lifted. Sin's completely washed away. The beauty of Christmas is that a king was born. This king was given all authority at his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the one who sits at the right hand of God. And at this moment, God the Father took all of his authority that he reigned over creation and he gave it to his son Jesus who rules over his church and over all of the nations. And we're going to talk about how he rules over all the nations. But God has given all of this authority to him and he reigns on David's throne. He rules over every. The father now places all authority in his son because of what he has accomplished for us. And as king, that means he is also judge. And the enemy that we're seeing today, the very first enemy that he has overcome is Satan himself. Satan is your enemy. He's going to come to you. He's going to remind you of your past. And you've heard me say this before. When the devil starts reminding of your past, you remind him of his what? His future. You have won the victory by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony, the applied blood of the lamb in your life. So as you're you're celebrating Christmas this year, I'm going to encourage you. Consider what what we're talking about here is Jesus as the king, born as a babe in Bethlehem, protected by the angelic army of God at his birth and throughout his life. And you really think that Satan finally won when he crucified him? Not. That's That's when Satan himself actually lost. And so this king born in Bethlehem, this king that God protected, this king was raised up. He's a mighty warrior, the first enemy he slayed. The first enemy, rather, that he won victory over was Satan himself. And so as you're going through these celebrations of Christmas, I want you to consider what kind of shame are you battling with right now? And, and, and that's kind of what you're seeing here with Zecho, excuse me, with Joshua. The shame. He is standing before God Almighty 
and God's angels, and you know how angels are dressed and they're, they're bright and shiny, and he's got filthy, filthy clothes on. You see, that was you before Christ. That was you before the king of heaven came and took residence up in your life and removed those filthy clothes, broke the shackles of shame in your life, no longer to be able to, uh, for the enemy to be able to carry any weight in his accusations against your sin. That is over. That is done with. I want you to stand with me right now. I want us to ask this question. What is keeping you from experiencing this type of peace? Because I tell you what, if you wrestle with shame, you have no peace. God came to break that in your life and to bring peace. Amen, church? Peace. So, Father, I ask you that wherever the enemy is coming in against us and we are choosing to listen to him, close his mouth, rebuke him, God Almighty. And I, I thank you, Father, for what we have in Christ. I thank you that that shame has been broken, that our sins have been canceled. They've been washed away completely. Father, I just ask, allow us to experience this amazing peace and this joy that is our birthright because of what our King has accomplished for us. Jesus, thank you that you came to this earth so frail and helpless as a king to do all of this for me. Thank you, God. Father, some of us, we need this shame broken in our life. Would you do that, God, right now? As we again cling to the cross and give no leeway and no ear to the enemy. God, thank you, you're so good. Thank you, Father. Freedom, peace, joy, in the name of Jesus.